here in John 15, when we pick up on the thought of verse 18 and then continue on through 16, you find Jesus warning His disciples of what is to come. You find Him warning that tough times are coming. And He reminds them that they shouldn't be surprised of this because they've seen tough times in His life. They've seen how the multitudes have treated Him. They've seen how the authorities have treated Him. They've seen His rejection. And He reminds them that they shouldn't be surprised by their own. He says, if the world hates you, remember, they hated me also. He tells them, you'll be put out of the synagogues. You'll be killed because of my name. And it's the following day that Jesus is put out of the city and is taken up on a mountain and is killed. Because of the meaning of His name, Jesus, the Lord saves. As we look at these verses, I want you to consider with me a few few observations that we that we can make about them he tells them of the rejection of the world in in warning them about that coming rejection in warning them that they will be indeed rejected by the world he's reminding them of his very own plight he is the one who is rejected we sang of it man of sorrows what a name And we say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, what a Savior. But too often we forget that His his salvation that He offers us is purchased not just by His death, but also by His rejection. The world has rejected Him. We, His own people, Rejected him. And he promises us that as we have been called out of the world and we, as we have been given his name, that we too can expect to be rejected. He begins telling them about the work of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that he reminds them of, one of the things that he makes them privy to is the fact that when the Holy Spirit comes, He will bring the presence of Christ and the presence of the Father with Him. He calls Him the Spirit of truth who will lead and guide us, His church, into all truth. But He is the one who brings the presence of the triune God to us, to this community, and into our hearts as we trust Him in faith. And as He is warning them, and as He is promising them, we find that Jesus is actually strengthening them. 
He's not just talking to individuals. He's talking to a congregation. He's talking to His disciples. And He's warning them to rejection. He's promising them together of the coming Holy Spirit. And in doing that, He is offering them strength. Strength that can be found in one another as they bind themselves together as the body of Christ. As we turn our attention toward the root systems that God gives us as His church, not just individuals have been called together to be His body. I want you to consider with me three different root systems that He's given to us. The ecclesial roots that He's given to us begin first with worship. What is the church? It is the people of God. The people of God who worship Him. And worship is our response to God. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews warned his hearers, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. Don't forsake one another. Don't, don't neglect getting together. And it is in, in the context of worship that the writer is thinking. They're the people of God who gather together to worship the Father and His Son, Jesus. Who gather in the presence of His Holy Spirit to lift up hearts, to lift up songs and hymns and spiritual songs as you have written in the New Testament. And in the mind of the Hebrews writer, as well as in the mind of several others, including Paul in the New Testament, as the people of God gather for worship, as they gather to receive voices in song, as they gather to look to the Scriptures together, to pray together, as they gather to hear from God together, they gather and participate in the activity of heaven. They are participating in what's going on at the throne of God in heaven. You find all scattered all throughout the New Testament these strange references among the people of God. In fact, the Hebrews writer says, don't forget to entertain strangers because in doing that, some of you have entertained angels without even knowing it. Paul, in, in talking about the, uh, the corporate life of worship of the Corinthians, He's making mention of you know, how they ought to even dress and so forth. And he says, now be sure to do this because of the angels that are there. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes when we enter these doors on Sunday mornings, we're not thinking like New Testament believers. Myself included. I'm not trying to pick on you guys. 
I'm wondering how many, when we entered these doors this morning, was there a single one of us who thought there are going to be angels in there worshiping with us? That's how the New Testament church thought. When they gathered together, they, were, they weren't just trying to muster up some, some happiness. Gathering together just to kind of get charged up for the week. They were gathering together as worshiping people, as the body of Christ on earth, joining their voices, joining their minds, joining their hearts with the host of heaven. Amen. And they expected the angels to participate. Worship is not just up. The worship of the triune God, the worship of the one who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is about our response to Him, celebration of His presence. And it's about being His people. People who are called by His name. People who trust in Him. And He's offered to us in His body the opportunity of worship. The opportunity not just for us to get strengthened, but the opportunity to respond to His goodness and His faithfulness. The opportunity to express to Him among one another our love. What we do here on Sunday mornings is kind of like the Scriptures tell us that we're awaiting a day where there will be a great marriage supper of the Lamb and all of His people will gather together and be united to Christ, the church being His bride, and will be offered up to our Father. And what we do is we gather for worship each and every week, each and every Sunday, celebrating the resurrection of Christ, looking ahead to what is to come, is we are, we are participating in a rehearsal dinner. going to be happening. And we're offered this opportunity and this root in our lives so that we might bear fruit. We're offered, secondly, as a church body, the roots... Hey, look, of the sacraments. The sacraments. And the sacraments remind us of God's grace to us. What is a sacrament? Simply put, it's an outward, visible sign of an inner spiritual grace. And you might think, that's weird. Why in the world would we think there's something unique about the sacraments? After all, we're talking 
Most of us take baths or showers every evening or morning. At least after we mow the lawn. What's, what's so unique about a loaf of bread and a chalice of wine? In fact, um, I often think that we think so little of the sacraments that communion use Doritos and Coke. I mean, that's honestly how little we think of the sacramental life of the church. But this is the way of God. The word sacrament literally means a holy thing. It is, it is something, not just in the sacraments that, is, that we've given to God, it's something He's given to us. If you've got a problem with the sacraments, partake of the elements. And our hesitation about the sacraments, our, our thought that well, it's just something we do. It's, it's just a kind of a testimony, right? It's just, it's just something we do kind of to remind ourselves, right? We can remind ourselves of post-it notes. But these are the sacraments of God that His Son Jesus has given to us. Our hesitation about it is product of, of, of the Enlightenment way of thinking. Everything is reduced. C.S. Lewis humbly reminded us that if you want a God who fits into your mind, you want a God who's a bit too small. The way of God blows our minds. The way, you know, the scriptures tell us, and we often quote it together, even the pagans quote it together. I say pagans in love and charity. Um, <laughs> We, we're, we are constantly probably haven't been to church in 20 years who've said that. He works in mysterious ways, right brother? He does. And every, everything, every single thing that God has given us to grow in Him, all those spiritual disciplines, they're all physical things. Every last one of them. We get weirded out by baptism. Whatever you want to call it. We get weirded out by those things because we think that we, we, we think, oh man, we're talking about magic or something here. Every single instrument that God has given to us to grow in Him. Every Every opportunity He has given to us to receive His grace is something physical. He's given us His Word. We hold this book and we read it with our eyes. We process it with our minds. We try to... We speak words to Him. Even if we don't pray out loud, our minds are thinking. We're lifting up thoughts to Him. We gathered together for church. We drove here. If we didn't have cars, we'd walk here, hopefully. 
ride a bike. But all of those things, all those things that we take for granted as, well, of course God's given us those things to grow in Him. They're all physical things. He's offered us two sacraments. Others would say there are more. But we'll at least agree on two. Baptism and the Eucharist. Holy baptism and holy communion. It's interesting what he offers us. He offers us a bath and a meal. Two things that we, that we want and need. Receive the grace of God and express our faith in Him. We are symbolically being birthed into the life of the church. We are stepping into covenant with God. Baptism in the early church was a rite of covenant. I've, uh, I think I've, I've mentioned before that baptism is not something that can be undone. You can renounce your baptism. You can abandon it, walk away from it. You can you know, not live according to it. You can break that covenantal oath, but it can't be undone. It's a mark of eternity. And in stepping into the sacrament of baptism, away our sins and he offers us new life in himself in the sacrament of the Eucharist God gives us a meal wherein we might regularly be reminded of his sacrifice in our behalf and we're where for our faith. And he's put these in the life of the church. Neither baptism nor communion are individual things. They're not private matters. They are ecclesial things. They are as soon as our service is over and as we mingle a bit and buy Bill and Jan a few minutes to get home, we're all invited to go to their home to celebrate the baptism of Kalea and Hannah. That's not some private matter. That's not some kind of little family activity. That's something that's a part of the body of Christ. And so as the body of Christ, I want to urge you and encourage you, together let's go and celebrate
as we celebrate the sacrament of baptism, we ought to rehearse in our minds the covenant that we've made with God in our own baptism. Just as we do at a marriage ceremony, as we hear the exchange of vows, we ought to be reminded of the vows that we've exchanged. So we are summoned to do as we hear the vows of baptism. But to be also people who create a Christian presence. God wants to bear fruit in our lives, not just as individuals, but as individuals who have been called into relationship and communion with one another, and people who have been made into the local presence of the body of Christ. And if worship is our response to God, and the sacraments are about God's grace to us, You are the body of Christ. He's in, you remember the text? And you're each individual, uh, individual parts of that body. And he goes on talking about how God has equipped the different parts and has made one body, one unity in the midst of a diversity of giftedness. But he told them also in his second epistle to them that, that he, he said, we are ambassadors for Christ as if God is pleading through us that the world might be reconciled. The body of Christ, the church, is about God's presence in His world. And I use His world very specifically. It's not just the world. It is His world. It is the world that He has created. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, people who are part of our families, they are people that God Himself has created in His image. They are people for whom Christ has died. They are not our enemies. We get so caught up even as the church, pathetically, we get caught up in the political jargon of the day in this sporting type terminology, and we and, and, and we think of we think of theology and we think of Christian presence and the Christian ethic in those terms. You've got us and them. You've got our team and their team. And our job is to beat their team. Where do you find that in the Scriptures? We can't find that in the Scriptures. We are the body of Christ. We are His presence in His world. That's why God's desire to bear fruit in our lives, God so that we might bear fruit, is about love. It is about loving Him and loving others. It is about giving ourselves. And as the presence of God 
in his world, this idea of Christian presence, which is the only hope of the world. Um, some of us might say greatest president, at least of modern America, you know, America is the great hope, the city set on the hill. That's not America in the scriptures, that's the church. The church, the presence of God in His world is the hope of the world. We are the city set on the hill. We are the light in the midst of darkness. Jesus was talking to His disciples, to those who are following Him. He wasn't talking about the Hebrew nation. Neither was He talking about the Romans. And as He has placed us in His world, as He, as he has called us together to be His presence, He calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves, including And that love is expressed in service. Service that is, in, that is tangible, service that is intentional, and service that is gracious. He calls us not to begrudgingly serve the world, not to, not to flippantly or kind of haphazardly serve the world, not to, in a spiritual way, to serve the world. We're just going to pray for Him. He calls us to tangibly, intentionally, and graciously serve His world. I think part of our problem, myself included, is that we too often forget how God works. We too often forget that He wants to work through us for the sake of someone else. No one, absolutely no one, comes to faith in Christ in a vacuum apart from anybody else's influence. We can point to examples. Paul is on the road to Damascus. He's Saul time. You know, he's going to persecute the church. Who had an influence on him? You read in the verses just prior the stoning of Stephen and how the, the garments are placed at Paul's feet. There were people who had influence on Saul's life. No one comes to faith in a vacuum. We are all means of God's grace to the people with whom we have contact. We think of the means of grace as the Scriptures, prayer, Christian worship, Christian fellowship. Perhaps we ought to Think of the means of grace also as the way God works in the lives of others. That's through us. He wants me, He wants you to be channels, to be conduits through which He can reach others. 
And that doesn't happen just willy-nilly. It doesn't happen accidentally. It happens as we submit ourselves, as we put ourselves under His control, and as we intentionally and tangibly and graciously serve others. Perhaps you and I need to think of the one or two people that God's put in our lives that we need to be means of grace for. Every time a new neighbor moves into your neighborhood, your first thought ought to be, hmm. Not, oh, I'm going to try to get them to church. That'll come. Please do that. But, hmm. I need to get to know these people. Not I need to hang something on their door. I need to get to know these people. Perhaps God wants to use me in their lives. As we come to a close this morning, I want you to take out your communication cards and look at the the back. There's a place of response. You'll notice also that there's an identical looking place of response. Well, not identical, but very similar. Same wording and everything. On the back of your bulletin. I want you to hang on to your bulletin. Of, uh, this service reminds you of the songs we sang, the scriptures that we read. Remind you of the announcements that we've made, camp, membership meeting. But they'll remind you also of your response what you said you intended to do. But I want you to drop off a communication card in the offering plate at the back so that I can know better how to be praying for you. I mentioned this last week. Think about the relationships in which God has placed us as we think specifically today about His body, the church, and how He wants in us to put, uh, wants in his church for us to put roots down. One of the root systems that he's offered to us as a local congregation is the opportunity of being part of small groups. We have a couple going on now, but we'll be gearing up some others uh, toward the end of the summer. I wonder if you'd say, you know what, I want to be a part of one of those small groups. Please mark accordingly if that's what you'd like to say. Secondly, church membership's not the end-all, be-all. Church membership doesn't get you into heaven, except for church membership of Faith Methodist. That does, but kidding, kidding. Um, but church membership does, uh, it is significant, it is meaningful, and it is, uh, we are saying, this is the family that God has given to me, and I am becoming a part of that family. I'm not just a stay over stay over friend. No matter how often they stay over, right Bill? To be a part of the family is a little bit um, a little bit more of a commitment. And I wonder if you'd say I want to I want to come to next Saturday's membership meeting. It's an hour and a half. It's relatively painless. Um, I always joke and say we only draw blood if you say yes. But uh, I'm completely kidding. Um, 
But please, please consider coming to that next Sunday morning at 9. Even if you're not sure if you want to become a member, but you just maybe want to know a little bit more about it. Coming to that meeting does not guarantee you've done or that you will do anything. But if you would like to know more about membership here, please, please do sign up for that. And then lastly, and this is probably the most, um, the most serious of of these three and the, the one that we probably ought to take desperately seriously in our lives. And I wonder if you would say, you know what, I, I need to become more intentional as a means of grace to others. I've just kind of done what I can here and there and that's not good enough. I need to recognize that God has put me in the lives of others to be a means of His grace. And I want to take that responsibility. And I want to act upon that responsibility a bit more intentionally. I'm sure all of us can think of two or three names, two or three faces of folks that He has put us into contact with that He wants to use us in drawing them to Him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the end of we pray that You would search us. We pray that You would strengthen our faith. We pray that You would Remind us of the significance of our having gathered here this morning. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and help us to see that there are that as we lift up our voices in song, as we lift up our hearts and minds in worship to you, as we look to You in the Scriptures, as we hear from You, as we celebrate the elements of this meal we call communion, we are participating in what is going on in eternity. Father, we pray that You would help us to respond to Your Word accordingly. We pray that You would help us to be more intentionally Your body in means of Your grace. Father, we pray that as we respond to You, Spirit's pull upon our hearts. And we pray that He would have free reign to search us and to try us, to weigh us, to measure us, and to do in us that which is needed. We pray all of these things in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.
Every little 